This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, it's Black History Month, and we have an interview today with one of the heroes of black history, Isabel Wilkerson. She won the Pulitzer Prize and the National Humanities Medal and the National Book Critics Circle Award and a bunch of other prizes. Her unforgettable book is The Warmth of Other Suns. It's a history of how six million black people left the Deep South and moved to northern cities from 1915 to 1970. The book was named to more than 30 best of the year lists. It made national news when President Obama chose the book for summer reading. We'll speak with Isabel Wilkerson later in this hour. First up, Trump's new national emergency and the Green New Deal in California. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, we had big news this week about the Green New Deal in California and in Los Angeles, and we have news about uh, Trump's border wall uh, at this hour. For these uh, stories, we turn to David Dayan. He writes for The Intercept, Salon, The New Republic, and The Nation, and he's about to become executive editor of The American Prospect. His book, Chain of Title, is about three ordinary Americans who uncover Wall Street's foreclosure fraud. David Dayan, welcome back. Thank you. Well, first, let's talk about the headlines at this hour. Donald Trump says he will sign a spending bill that does not fund the wall. That's the same thing that led him to close the government for 35 days. And instead, he will declare a national emergency to bypass Congress the New York Times uh, called this in a story that's just gone up on their website the most stinging legislative defeat of Mr. Trump's presidency. I wonder if you think that's uh, fair. I don't know. It's hard to judge. I mean, what about what about the failure of uh, the repeal of Obamacare? That was that was pretty stinging. Uh, the the wall has not failed one time, but several times in several budget deals. This only being the the most recent. Uh, as for this uh, national emergency, uh, you know, I, I obviously this will go almost directly to the courts. Uh, this will be tied up, and uh, the Supreme Court, where it will probably ultimately land, will have to decide whether they think it's a good precedent to allow a future president to declare a national emergency based on uh, whatever issue. It is they want to prioritize, be that the Green New Deal or Medicare for All, or all of which could lay claim to being actual emergencies, probably far more than the uh, incidents on the southern border. Excellent uh, point. Yeah, they're talking now about uh, do we want to give President Bernie Sanders the power to declare that uh, climate change is a national emergency? Because, as you say, it is a national emergency. <laughs> Right. I mean, it, it certainly has a, a stronger case than uh, the declining numbers of people who are showing up on the southern border. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll certainly have to see. And there actually is a legislative mechanism by which uh, the Congress could disapprove of a national emergency declaration. 
they would obviously have to get two-thirds uh, of a vote to get over a veto from the president, who obviously would want to, uh, that to go forward. But uh, already we've seen Kathy McMorris-Rogers, who's a member of the uh, House Republican leadership, uh, savage the idea of declaring a national emergency for just that reason of setting the precedent. And uh, if if that sort of becomes the sort of standard within the Republican caucus, then, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly possible that Congress could just outright nix this. Yeah, I think the, uh, the argument that this is, what did the New York Times call it, the most singing defeat of his presidency, their, their argument is he has made the wall the nearly singular focus of his presidency for the last year. Uh, and it's, you know, it's this strange thing. You just kind of got to scratch your head about this. He made this up completely. Nobody before him ever thought that the wall was the solution to all our uh, problems of immigration, even the people who think there's a terrible problem of, of illegal immigration. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the wall uh, sort of has now taken on this totemic significance. It, it, it's really about... Uh, a show of force against uh, undocumented people coming into the country, uh, uh, whether legally or illegally, quite frankly. It's, it's yeah. more of a cultural signifier than uh, any any kind of real, tangible, physical barrier. And so building the wall is almost a, a, a show of uh, tribal kind of expression of, of showing you know, what you value rather than uh, whether you're going to put up a concrete slab or a steel slat or whatever. Uh, yeah, and the problem here is that the Constitution, Article 1, says that, uh, that all uh, money spent by the government has to be appropriated, first of all, by the House of Representatives. No money shall be drawn from the Treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law, it says. The specifically founders, those men in, in those white men, in the old white men in, in white wigs, did not want the president spending money without uh, a law being passed that enabled him to do it. Well, they certainly didn't, but future Congresses after the Founders did pass this national emergency uh, authority onto the president. And, you know, at least in theory, I mean, we'll see the practice tested in the courts, but at least in theory, national emergencies certainly have been used uh, to uh, do troop deployments, to appropriate funds. Uh, so it, it's not as far-fetched as it should be, I would argue. I would argue for probably more of a, a return to the vision of the founders and a less uh, uh, strong executive, but it's not completely far-fetched to say that, that a president has you know, certain powers in this arena. Uh, I think that's a problem of uh, you know, allowing these end runs around Congress that we've seen in presidency after presidency after presidency uh, you know, pretty soon you, you get a president like Donald Trump who wants to do what he wants and can cast around and find ways in which Congress uh, gave power to the president to uh, engage in some of these things. So I, I think the larger issue is about executive power and this, uh, this particular uh, issue, which will go to the courts, will be kind of a, a test case on that. 
And uh, the Republicans, so the Republicans are worried that it will set a precedent for President Bernie Sanders declaring a national emergency around the uh, uh, climate change, which requires a Green New Deal. Let's, that's our segue to the news of the last couple of days about the Green New Deal in California. There's bad news and there's good news. Uh, well, let's start with the bad news. Governor Gavin Newsom announced, uh, made an announcement about the high-speed rail line that is supposed to connect San Diego and L.A. with San Francisco. He didn't exactly kill the whole thing, but what exactly did he do? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, sort of confusion and controversy around what exactly Newsom did, and there's a lot of semantics going on. But, you know, I mean, Newsom's in his state of the state, address just basically said we're not going to be able to finish the segments that would connect north and south uh, with a high-speed rail line. Uh, he, he said he was committed to finishing the middle segment, which has already undergone construction uh, for part of it, and that takes you between Bakersfield and Merced. Uh, however, he made no commitments to actually build out beyond that, he said it you know, would take too much money and too much time. And while he's continuing some of the environmental impact studies and, and, and certain regional uh, uh, decision-making uh, beyond that, to, to go to San Francisco, to go to Los Angeles, Sacramento, and San Diego, uh, he's, he's made no commitments whatsoever to, to keep that going. And, and frankly, it seems pretty low on his priority list. So it, uh, I think it's accurate to say that this is the, the end, at least for now, of a high-speed rail line linking north and south. And high-speed rail is specifically a key element of the Green New Deal that uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez announced uh, last week. Why is high-speed rail uh, an important part of the Green New Deal? Well, uh, it, it does have a, a significant climate impact. If you, if you look at the original scoping plan for AB32, which is, I guess, California's version of the new Green New Deal, our, our cap-and-trade system, uh, it included high-speed rail. And the, and the reason is this. The number one most trafficked uh, air travel corridor is Los Angeles and San Francisco. More uh, plane trips by far are taken uh, between those two cities than any other two cities. Uh, and, and, you know, that's just a portion of the traffic that travels between those two cities. You also have uh, car traffic that goes there. Um, if we're going to probably uh, increase our population by significant amounts in the next several decades, the only way to handle that from a transportation standpoint is to either build more airports and more roads that take you north and south, or to build a high-speed rail line that can get you there in roughly the same amount of time as a plane when you account for security lines and getting to the airport and getting from the airport to the city center uh, at a cheaper price. And that is uh, sort of the vision of this. And it will be an electric uh, uh, train track, whereas air travel goes with jet fuel. Uh, so the climate impact is significant if you replace uh, this short-haul travel with uh, a, a high-speed rail uh, travel trip. Uh, it's, there's, yes. there's really no comparison. Electric, very important. An electric-powered train, which means from renewable 
solar and wind instead of jet fuel and gasoline bringing people up and down the state of California. Uh, the problem is that high-speed rail connecting southern and northern California, it was voted by the by the voters of California 10 years ago. The project right now is is $44 billion over budget, 13 years behind schedule. Why is it so hard for California to figure out high-speed rail construction? Many other countries have done this, uh, and, and not just France and Japan, but uh, Morocco, Uzbekistan have built high-speed rail. Why is it so hard for California? You can ask why is it so hard for America. I mean, uh, there are a, a number of reasons. Uh, one is uh, the management, uh, the project management by the California, California High-Speed Rail Authority, which has left something to be desired. There were political concessions made around how you would route uh, high-speed rail, whether you would go over the grapevine, the Tejon Pass, or uh, around to the, the Hatchapi Mountains, uh, around Palmdale. Uh, that added like $5 billion itself because they made the decision to go to Tehachapi. Uh, there were uh, concessions made up north, whether to use sort of follow the uh, 580 route and go uh, through the Altamont Pass or go through the Pacheco Pass, which takes you to San Jose. Uh, that uh, added cost. And uh, the big thing is a, an extremely determined opposition yeah. uh, that is against rail of any kind rose up and uh, submitted lawsuits every step of the way, mile by mile on this thing, that dragged out the timeline and, and, and thereby dragged out uh, and increased the cost because inflation... Uh, simply dictates that if you're taking longer to make this this thing work, then uh, it's going to cost more. So uh, there were a variety of factors. We simply don't do big infrastructure projects like this in the United States with any kind of efficiency that you see in Europe or Asia. We don't use the same best practices. We don't have good coordination between the number of different transit authorities all across the state. Uh, we, 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 we just, you know, there are a lot of places where we could have done a lot better. And now, uh, we're in a terrible situation where we're going to have this stub in the central Valley that connects maybe a million people in a state of 40 million, uh, that, uh, threatens to be seen as a boondoggle and, and sort of, uh, you know, the poster child of high speed rail in the United States. Uh, and, and that's extremely dangerous. It's going to taint any attempt to reboot a high-speed rail system in the future. And this is, this is the only high-speed rail project underway right now in the entire United States. Uh, yeah. So let's, let's get to the good news about the uh, Green New Deal in California. The announcement by L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti that the city is not going to spend more than $2 billion on gas-fired electric generating plants. And the mayor was explicit about the politics of this. He said, quote, this is the Green New Deal, not in concept, not in the future, but now, close quote. Explain exactly what he's talking about here. Well, I mean, you have to pair it with what is going to replace this. So you have yes. uh, these uh, energy power sources, um, and we have a mandate in California 
that Kevin DeLeon wrote and passed called SB100, uh, which requires 100% renewable energy by 2045. And so the idea of building any new power generating capacity that has any kind of fossil fuel uh, uh, component to it uh, is, is, I mean, that would be insane because by 2045, it would not be operative anymore. And that's, you know, only 25 years away, practically. So uh, the, the replacement for this, presumably for some sort of power generation, would have to be solar, wind, or some other type of renewable and uh, that's the mandate for California going forward. Uh, it's, it's not just in Los Angeles, but up and down the state. And so that renewable portfolio standard is, is really powerful in this local decision-making because the, the locals have to see the cost-benefit here of, of putting all kinds of money and effort, $2 billion, into building something that's going to be obsolete in a couple of decades. So that's, that's what's, I think, really driving this. And what it means is that uh, the only power generation we're going to see built in California uh, for the, forever is, is going to be renewable power generation. And I think one big reason for this victory is that the L.A. has municipal power. The Department of Water and Power uh, is ultimately controlled democratically, and it's a lot easier to fight City Hall than to fight uh, ExxonMobil or, or some big uh, energy multinational. Right. Well, when you have that, you're absolutely right. When you have investor-owned utilities, uh, uh, that it's a much heavier lift, uh, both to get these kinds of solutions done in the first place, like uh, 100% green power, uh, and to, to push those utilities into that, uh, you know, in that more positive direction. And we're seeing that right now with PG&E, right? I mean, yeah. uh, we're, we're, this, is, this is an entity that is going bankrupt, uh, that is investor-owned and causing a great deal of uh, disruption and chaos, when if it was uh, a, a state-owned utility, uh, the, at least the disruption would, would be far more limited. So uh, that, that's, I think, uh, the lesson you can draw there. Uh, last uh, last question uh, briefly. The DWP has spent its entire existence trying to make sure there's enough electricity so that even in the hottest of heat waves, the air conditioning can keep going for everyone in Los Angeles. And of course, as it's getting hotter, we have more days where we have peak demand for uh, for air conditioning electricity. Mm -hmm. uh, when the when we get brownouts, when the power goes out, elderly people die from uh, from heat waves. Uh, so that's that's what the DWP has been saying. We're we're trying to save lives here, and you're uh, you're going out on a limb by by thinking solar energy is is going to replace uh, the need right. for gas generated electricity in the big heat waves that are going to come. What do you say to that? Well, it, it's I mean it's worth thinking about because uh, renewables do have something of a storage issue, that it's, it's more difficult to actually store the energy uh, than it is uh, to, to, you know, uh, maybe with other, other types of electricity and power generation. So, uh, you know, they call it sometimes the duck problem, where if you look at the capacity over the course of a day, it sort of dips at one point and uh, kind of starts to look like a duck. Um, 
that is going to require some technological change uh, and and some innovation that I I think is a problem that uh, certainly needs to be and is being worked on. Uh, once you sort of figure that out, I think that'll get you part of the way there. And the other way is by continuing to encourage more take up of local generation. In other words, solar roofs yeah. and uh, uh, you know power that uh, can can be fed back into the grid when when necessary and also used uh, within uh, the house uh, that uh, on top of which it sits. So uh, I think there's a variety of stra- uh, uh, strategies here. One, decentralization. Two, innovation. And uh, but but you know the 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 people have really spoken on this. I mean, the legislature passed this uh, uh, requirement for 100% green power. The public supports it, uh, and uh, the the uh, utilities, uh, whether publicly, municipally owned, or investor owned, are going to have to figure out a way to deliver. And I would add just one other thing, which is that, yes, it's true that people die in heat waves, but people also die uh, from the, the super forest fires that we've had. What was it, like 100 people died in the campfire uh, just last summer. Um, so it's not all the deaths are on one side here, where everyone is hoping to be able to save lives uh, in different ways. David Dayan, he's about to become, in a month or two, executive editor of The American Prospect. David, thanks so much for talking with us. It's great to have you on the show. All right. Thank you. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, the great Isabel Wilkerson on the Great Migration. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Well, February is Black History Month, and we have an interview with one of the heroes of black history, Isabel Wilkerson. She won the Pulitzer Prize and the National Humanities Medal and the National Book Critics Circle Award and a bunch of other prizes. Her unforgettable book is The Warmth of Other Suns. The book was named to more than 30 Best of the Year lists, including the New York Times' 10 Best Books of the Year, Amazon's 5 Best Books of the Year, and the Best of the Year list in The New Yorker, The L.A. Times, The Washington Post, and dozens of others. And it made national news when President Obama chose the book for summer reading. We spoke with Isabel Wilkerson here at KPFK when her book Warmth was published in 2010. The story of black people who left the South, six million black people who headed for the North and the West between 1915 and 1970. Isabel Wilkerson has been working on on that story for more than a decade. She won a Pulitzer Prize for her work at the New York Times as Chicago bureau chief. She also won a George Polk Award and a Guggenheim Fellowship. Now she's professor of journalism at Boston University. Her new book is called The Warmth of Other Suns. It's on the New York Times bestseller list. Isabel Wilkerson, uh, congratulations and welcome to the program. Thank you. Great to be here. 
You interviewed uh, how many people doing the research for this book? I stopped counting after 1,200. 1,200. Now, if we have any history students in the audience, I want to say, kids, don't try this at home. (laughs) You do not have to interview 1,200 people if you're doing a history project, a family um, genealogy. You can interview two or three, and it might even be just great. (laughs) Your book is about what we call the Great Migration from uh, the Deep South to the North and the West. I I always wondered why the black people in L.A. mostly came from Texas and Louisiana, whereas uh, the black people in Chicago came from Mississippi. But it turns out there's quite a simple explanation. There's a simple explanation in that there were three major streams of this great migration. It started in 1915 when World War I began, and there was a great need for labor in the north, in the northern industrial cities. And they went to the cheap labor, which was in the south, and they began to recruit people. And the people were following essentially the train lines and the bus routes uh, that were already in place. So they were following... Uh, predictable routes. It was not just a haphazard unfurling of people. There were three main routes. One was up the East Coast from Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas, and Virginia up to Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. That was one route. And that was the route that my family actually followed. Uh, There was a second one, which was, as you mentioned, from Mississippi, Arkansas, Alabama, to Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, following the Illinois Central, primarily up north. And then the route that's less known around the rest of the country is the one from uh, Louisiana and Texas to uh, California and the rest of the West Coast as people were following the train lines uh, out here. Well, you mentioned the Illinois Central, the the IC from Mississippi, especially north Chicago. In, in my days as a blues aficionado, I went to uh, Clarksdale, Mississippi, the home of uh, Muddy Waters and other greats and Highway 61. Highway 61. And part of that pilgrimage is you go to the IC station in Clarksdale, and I uh, stood on the platform, the the northbound platform, and and tried to imagine what it must have been like in 1940 for young McKinley Morganfield to be standing there. I imagine you've been to some of those IC platforms, too. Well, one of the things that I really were was the goal of this book was to help bring this alive for the reader, to have the reader be able to feel what it was like to be living in the South at that time, to imagine being out in the open field, the cotton fields, uh, to be able to board those trains, as it was like to be on those trains, to see, to feel what it was like to arrive in a big city where you knew no one, uh, the sounds, the feels, the 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 the, the uh, sights and sounds of that. And to put the reader right inside the hearts and minds of these people who really were leaving in uh, the same way that um, people from other parts of the world have come uh, coming across the Atlantic in steerage or across the Pacific. It was really this immigrant heart that was propelling them to find another place that might be freer within the borders of their own country. So how many people rode the IC, the Illinois Central, out of the South? Well, you know, they they came from all over. The IC was just one of the many places. I mean, there was the Silver Comet 
coming up the north. There's the uh, uh, the uh, Southwest Chief. There was all many. There were many many different trains and bus bus routes. Many people drove and left in the middle of the night. It's hard to know how many might have been on any particular mm-hmm. line because they were going every which way they could to get out. Essentially, these were defections from the South. It's almost as if they were seeking political asylum from a caste system that had been treating them ill. So you tell the the Mississippi to Chicago story by focusing on a woman named Ida Mae Gladney. How did you find Ida Mae Gladney and and, and the other people you wrote about? Well, that's where the 1,200 people that I I mentioned come (laughs) in. Essentially, I did kind of a casting call, a kind of audition, you might say. And so I went to senior centers, many of them right here in in L.A. I went to uh, uh, senior day picnics. I went to quilting clubs. I went to to Baptist churches, Catholic mass. I went to a Juneteenth parade. I actually had a booth at the Juneteenth parade over near Lamert Park one year in order to find people. So I went all over. Uh, when it came to Chicago, I went to a place where there were retirees from the CTA, that's the Chicago Tr- Transit Authority, and the and a, and a woman came up and she said, I didn't actually make the migration, but my mother did. And so she volunteered her mother, Ida Mae Gladney, uh, for uh, consideration for the book. And uh, what kind of person was Ida Mae Gladney when she was a young girl in Mississippi? Well, she was a tomboy, and she was very good at, she could kill snakes, she could chop wood, she uh, would like to go out and plow for her brothers, she actually would take tap sticks to kill uh, rabbits with. She, in fact, her, her nickname was Tom for a good while. And then uh, she, she, but in her world, there were perils. And at one point, she actually was, um, she was running an errand for her father, uh, taking some, uh, a tool to the blacksmith's um, shop. And the blacksmith's sons, who didn't have anything better to do, um, they actually grabbed her and they dangled her over the mouth of a well when she was about five or six year old, years old. She never forgot that. And she told me, she said, I wondered what, what would have happened if they had dropped me. No one would ever have known. In those days, there were not the protections for African-Americans in the Jim Crow South. And so she said nothing would have ever come of it. But she was the type of person who didn't dwell on such things, you know, an inspiration for all of us. She really lived in the moment and, and made the most of what she, whatever was before her. And um, she ended up being terrible at picking cotton. She ended up being a sharecropper's wife with that was the task. And she, she was terrible at it. She hated it. And again, she could kill snakes. She could wring a ch- chicken's neck for dinner, but she was not good at picking cotton. And her family ultimately left Mississippi for Chicago when um, a cousin had been wrongly accused of having of, of stealing something he had not uh, stolen. He was beaten within an inch of his life, and the next day the thing that they thought he had stolen turned up, but nothing was done of it uh, about it. And her husband came to her and said, after he saw what happened to his cousin, this is the last crop we're making, and they left. This is the last crop we're making. We're speaking with Isabel Wilkerson, her magnificent new book is titled The Warmth of Other Suns. So a key part of this story um, is not just that black people had the motivation and in many cases the energy to leave the South. The white South had a system to prevent them from leaving. There there was a legal system and then there was, what do we call it, an informal uh, system that backed that up. 
explain how this system worked. Well, first, the system known as Jim Crow controlled every aspect of their life so that it was illegal, believe it or not, it was against the law for a black person and a white person to play checkers together. It's astounding someone would just sit down and think about writing something down like that. But that was a law in Birmingham, for example. It, there was actually, in, there were in some courtrooms, a white Bible and a black Bible to swear to tell the truth on actually different Bibles. And there, it came to light for me when I d was doing the research, and there was actually a trial in which they had to stop the trial right in, in the middle of it because they couldn't find the black Bible Amazing. for the black person who had just uh, taken the stand. Amazing. But to get to your question about how, uh, the efforts to keep them from leaving, uh, when there were large numbers of black people on the plat train platforms, the authorities would uh, wholesale just arrest people on the charge of, of peonage or the fa or charge that they might have owed the planter to whom they under whom they had worked. And that was because their labor was leaving, their cheap labor was leaving, and the entire economy of the South was based upon having cheap labor to be able to work the fields and to tend to the, um, the essentially the Southern aristocracy. And so they did not want their cheap labor going. They would board the train sometimes when there were large numbers of black people already on the train and, and arrest people. And then when those things didn't work, they would actually wave the train on through if mm. they saw large numbers of black people waiting to board. And they also, there were uh, state uh, efforts to prevent blacks in Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, uh, from finding out about opportunities for jobs in the North. Uh, and that was that was you're speaking about the Chicago Defender primarily, which was essentially the, the the newspaper in the North that would alert people to the opportunities that were there, jobs available, um, what places that they might find a place to live. It gave them hope and, and connections that they might otherwise have. But that Chicago Defender was considered contraband, and a person could not, an African-American could not be seen receiving one. They might have been intercepted at the post office. I mean, who was there to receive it? But but the people who were running uh, the Jim Crow system. And so often they, the Chicago Defender made it to the South and to these people through the Pullman porters who would... Uh, who would pack them uh, in the back with the luggage, and then they would hurl them from certain agreed-upon mm. sites. And the people who were the essentially the couriers of them in the South would then go and, and, and get them and then distribute them. We're speaking with Elizabeth Wilkerson about her book, The Warmth of Other Sons. It's one of the classics of black history for Black History Month. And so, Isabel Wilkerson, in your book, The Warmth of Other Sons, you, you talk not only about leaving the South, but of, of life in the North. What, what was Ida May Gladney's life like in Chicago? Was it the promised land? It was very difficult, particularly in the beginning. She arrived during the Great Depression, uh, which was hard for everyone, but especially hard for her. And, and black women had a really hard time because uh, men in general, immigrant or otherwise, were much needed because you had foundries, you had steel mills, you had slaughterhouses, which where a strong back was required and valued, especially if you didn't have much education, and she did not. She had you know, grown up in the countryside of, of Mississippi. But the women had a hard time, and the only thing they could hope to do was become domestics, but there actually, during the Depression, was very little work for them. And so they ended up, she and there ended up being these markets, they were actually called them slave markets, in which black women would gather on a corner and wait for um, a well-to-do, well-to-do white housewives to come and pick oh. among them. And they actually started bidding wars among themselves, so they were bidding down the price oh. that they might get. That's the story 
one of the stories in this book, <laughs> Ida Mae Gladney's story of the Mississippi to Chicago uh, migration. There's also the Louisiana to Los Angeles migration, and that you tell through the story of a man named Robert Forster, who left Louisiana in 1953, an amazing person. For starters, he didn't take the train. He drove in a Buick. He drove in a Buick across the desert, and it ended up being a little more treacherous than he had anticipated because he thought that uh, he would be able to find a place to rest after he got out of Texas. And it turned out that in 1953, uh, Jim Crow, as we know, the the the, you know, the uh, system of segregation actually extended beyond the borders of what he thought was the South, and it was a, it was a shocking and surprising thing to him, and a dispiriting thing. And yet he had gone too far from his home in order to turn back. He was leaving Monroe, Louisiana, because he had served in the army as a surgeon. But when he got out of the army, it turned out he could not practice in his own hometown of Monroe, Louisiana. So he set out for California, which had always been a dream. And he wanted to uh, to come out here, but it turned out that he could he had to drive from multiple states without stopping because he could not find a place to stop to rest. And and how did it happen that Robert Forster got to be a surgeon in Louisiana uh, in the late forties? He didn't become a surgeon in Louisiana. <laughs> he became a surgeon by going to the one black uh, medical school, which happened to be Meharry Medical School, that happened to be in Tennessee. So he did not become a surgeon there. He had to go outside of his own state for that, to the slightly more progressive state of Tennessee, where there was a, a historically black college known as Meharry that had been that had gone had a history going back to uh, reconstruction and that's where he went and then he went into the army so then he went into the army and then uh, he was able to perform there are some fascinating stories about the problems that he had in the army but but once he got out he decided he wanted to bring he had a family by then but they had been separated for much of the time as he was pursuing his medical degree and he wanted to bring the whole family together and he set out on a course for uh, California on his own which is very typical of the great migration and of also immigrant men he often set out first and then scout out the new world get situated and then call for the family Mm-hmm. But he had such a hard time. I attempted, actually, in the course of doing the research, to recreate his journey. I rented a Buick. Wow. Had my parents <laughs> with me who were by then retired and all. And they were migrants. They had migrated mm-hmm. from the South, too. So they were always ready for an adventure. And we found ourselves. We've tried, I tried to follow it to the letter based upon his description of what he had done. And when we got to the stretch where he needed to drive without being able to stop, um, I began to. Ex- I wanted to experience what he did. How the fingers begin to swell and they begin to ache, and the eyes begin to get, mm. eyelids get heavy. And th- by this time, it was darkness in the desert, and the mm. mountains came, and you had this hair, these hairpin turns. And at a certain point, my parents said, "We must stop the car. You're not going to let us drive." They wanted so much to drive. I said, "No, I must do the driving myself." He did it himself, and I've got to do it. And my parents said, "No, for all of our sakes, stop." So we only made it to Yuma, Arizona, where, of course, because life, uh, because the world has changed so much, look how far we've come as a country. We had no trouble, my parents and I, finding a place to rest. But he did not have it so easy in 1953. He did not have it so easy. Robert Forster eventually went back to Louisiana. Tell us that story. 
Yeah, he had to go back. Generally, some people never went back, we should say. Some people never went back until unless uh, generally a mo- their mother died. Essentially, that was what brought some people back. He had to go back also for funerals. And one time when he went back, um, he decided to stop in at a uh, restaurant that he had not been able to go to when he was growing up in Monroe, Louisiana. This was now by now the 70s, and things had changed, and things had opened up. And he was he was surprised and underwhelmed by the very, by the mundane nature of the place that, of this restaurant that he'd gone to. I mean, by this time he'd lived in LA and he'd gone to some of the finest restaurants here. So mm-hmm. he was accustomed to just wonderful, wonderful, high-end, glamorous places. And he went back to this restaurant and he was thinking to himself, essentially, is this what they were keeping us from? Because it was so very mundane, which shows you how, how, how um, small the people were thinking when they tried to keep the races separate and how sad and tragic it was for everyone because some of these people might have been the best of friends but they would never get to know it because they were so separated that way so he found it quite under underwhelming and then in an odd kind of way he he was healed because is this all that there was is this all that there was yeah um i understand you brought your own mother back to georgia uh long after she had left and what what was that like for for her and for you well actually at first she i mean kicking and screaming i mean absolutely mm-hmm. didn't she <laughs> kicking and screaming and not wanting to to go back I needed to be in the South at a certain point for the writing because I needed to really truly understand what they left. They left a beautiful land. I mean, you must acknowledge the beauty of the land, the lushness of the land. They left kin and, you know, uh, relatives in the land of their birth. And so they gave up a lot and sacrificed a lot, as would as would any immigrant. You, you, you come to realize what the forebears have given up in order for all of us, so many of us, to have a life here in America, a great country. And and so I needed to do that. But she went back kicking and screaming and did not want to be there. I also took her to the um, the to um, the Fox Theater in Atlanta, where she growing up could only go through the side door. And she had the same reaction as Dr. Foster did. It was, you know, it's beautiful. It's, you know, got all of the the bells and whistles of one of those, uh, you know, 1920s theaters. But after all those years and after what she'd experienced being in Washington, D.C. with the great monuments and all in the White House and the Capitol and, the, and all of that, she, too, said, is this what they were trying to keep us from? Amazing. Uh, I just wanted to close by asking you to read the, um, the passage from which your title comes from uh, Richard Wright. Yes, Richard Wright was one of the great novelists of the 20th century. He was also someone who migrated from the South, from Mississippi to Chicago. And when he wrote this, in some ways, it's a message to anyone who ever has to leave one place that they, the place they've only known for a new place, a new life that they're setting out for. And it reads, I was leaving the South to fling myself into the unknown. I was taking a part of the South to transplant in alien soil to see if it could grow differently if it could drink of new and cool rains, bend in strange winds, respond to the warmth of other suns, and perhaps to bloom. Isabel Wilkerson, her wonderful new book is The Warmth of Other Suns. Isabel Wilkerson, thanks for your book and thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having me. We spoke with Isabel Wilkerson here at KPFK when her book came out in 2010. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. (coughs) 
I want to thank my guest, David Dayan. He talked about the Green New Deal in California and also Trump's emergency. We also heard from Elizabeth Wilkerson, the author of The Warmth of Other Suns, classic of Black History for Black History Month. Thanks to Alan Minsky, our senior producer. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo.